All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast, the show where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective. My name is Daniel, and we run ActualAnarchy.com and ReadRothbard.com. My co-host Robert is here with me, and today we're going to talk about the movie Passengers, the more recent version, not the uh, one from a few years back. This is the Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence one, right, Robert? What's up, Freedom Nerds? That's true. We're going to be talking about Passengers. Yeah, recent uh, sci-fi adventure type flick, romance flick, and uh, if you think about it, just calling it a romance movie spoils everything, but uh, we'll get into it. Well, we are in the business of spoiling things, uh, not only movies with spoilers, but economic fallacies and questions of morality, and uh, leftist arguments, income arguments, and all the like. So that's our bread and butter, buddy. Yes, we butter our bread with those buttery questions, and we tackle them, and we dig through, and we find little nuggets of love to spread and joy to share with you all. Yeah, so before we get started, I just want to welcome everyone to visit our site, actualanarchy.com. We've got almost 400 articles up there now, and our show is hosted there. We've got 15 or 16 RSS feeds as well as original content, exclusive writers, and other awesome, awesome stuff related to actual anarchy. We also run readrothbard.com, which is books, lectures, and articles by Murray N. Rothbard, the original godfather granddaddy of the anarcho-capitalist movement. And uh, we've got Amazon links. We've got Tom Woods Liberty Classroom links. So check those out. Support us in any way you can. Give us a like, comment, share, subscribe. iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and all the rest, wherever podcasts are sold. Robert, why don't you Daniel? tell us about this movie, buddy? What is this movie? You tell me, Daniel. You've seen it. Oh, that's right. You didn't. It's fine. There's really only a few big questions per se. This might be a short episode. It might be a super juicy episode. I don't know. But, um, okay, this is a two, 2016, all right, the far past of 2016. And Chris Pratt, also known as uh, Star-Lord, and he also wrangles um, little dinosaurs when he's not busy um, traveling through the uh, universe with Jennifer Lawrence. And, unfortunately, the mere fact that Jennifer Lawrence shares top billing gives away the plot and the moral question in this movie. But it's called Passengers because they are passengers. Do you get it? On a star cruiser, basically. Looks like a big, giant, whirling tree, like a Christmas tree. And they are traveling to, like, a near-habitable planet. It's the near future. 
well, whatever. It does, I don't remember if it actually says or not. It's probably 100 or 200 years in the future. But and this planet is, is, is not actually near, right? It's like pretty far, pretty fucking far. <laughs> well, they're traveling at half light speed, and it's going to take them like 96 years to get there. So in space it terms, far. that's in, well, in space terms, that's really close. But in you and me terms, it's it's really far. So they are all in this suspended animation, crew, passengers, everybody, and they are going to a colony, um, and their idea is to, I mean, for various reasons, but they're going to a colony. Um, and this ship is super, like, everybody is really weirded out when things go wrong because this is, like, this is the best and this never happens and that sort of thing. But what happens is, this happens at the very beginning of the movie. So is this like the, the Titanic of galactic spaceships? Uh, yes. Complete yes, with is. love story and drowning and um, naked drawings and all that stuff? Leo DiCaprio, climate change? Once Chris Pratt starts telling us about climate change while flying around in his private jet every other day, Yes, that is exactly what this is. So it's like a reboot. Uh, apparently, Titanic reboot. Yes, this is futuristic Titanic. Um, Slash love love love. This, this movie it's like got fairly panned. I mean, it got a few positive reviews, but it's sitting at like a 40% in Metacritic. Um, it's got fairly decent reviews otherwheres. But I didn't think this movie got the, the, the attention it deserved. I watched Suicide Squad. And I mean, I had these two movies, Suicide Squad and Passengers, and I'm sitting there going, which which order should I watch these movies in? And I go, well, whichever movie has a better Metacritic rating, I'll save that for last. So I looked at Suicide Squad and had a 40, and then Passengers had a 41. Oh, good <laughs> so Lord. I wasn't I wasn't <laughs> looking to I didn't have a whole lot of hope, but I watched Suicide Squad and I'm like, well, this is a dumpster fire of a piece of shit, and I hated it. And everything about it, and it was just a big nothing movie. You know the, the one whit. The, the trailers for that made it look kind of awesome. The trailer is by far the best thing. That that uh, Queen trailer, the Bohemian Rhapsody trailer, fantastic trailer. Uh, the movie is pile of garbage. Um, yeah. Anyway, it's just some generic piece of crap that everyone can and should miss. So but that was watched... our Suicide Squad episode, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> little mini episode, micro episode. <laughs> yeah, don't waste your time watching Suicide Squad. I, I wasted my time so you don't have to. What um, service? What service? That's right. Valuable service I'm providing. But then I watched Passengers, and within 15 minutes, it was 10 times the movie that Suicide Squad was. And I didn't understand the, 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 the bad ratings. The I didn't 1%. kept saying to myself, yeah, saying to myself over and over again that this is... This is so much better of a movie, even if it ends badly. It's still a way better movie. It held my attention the whole time. There are all these great moral questions. Not all of them, but the ones that they do ask are fantastic. So anyway, so Chris Pratt is this mechanic, and he is being traveling over to this uh, colony. And he has a – he gets a discounted – he got a discounted ticket. Because he is, uh, he has a desired profession of a, being a mechanic on this colony. 
so the company that transports them, you know, offers discount rates or whatever. And this ship, of course, like the Titanic, it hits something. It hits this giant asteroid. It kind of, I don't know why it's flying through this asteroid field, but it is. It's all on autopilot, right? Everybody's asleep. And it's flying through space. And it comes into this asteroid field, and it's got this shield on it. It's kind of like energy shield that deflects or destroys these smaller asteroids. But it hits this one big one, and it can't move out of the way, and it can't deflect it. And it causes some damage to the ship, and it wakes up Chris Pratt. And Chris Pratt's like, okay. And there's all these automatic um, shits going on to... Hey, welcome to whatever, and you know you gotta go follow through this and do these procedures, and this is your sleeping quarters for the next ninety days before we dock in the we arrive at the planet. All right, and he's so going hold through on. all these. Okay. At this point, did he wake up like because the system knows that if there's a problem, he's a dude they want to wake up, or is this just some random thing? From my viewing of the movie, I got that it was a random freak thing. The damage caused of the ship was like, just happened to damage his sleeping pod and wake him up and nobody else. So one out of, what, 5,000? Right. So he wakes up and he's going through all these procedures. He's asking the computer, you know, where everybody else is. And the computer can't offer any answers. And so he tries to get to the crew, but the crew is behind this like, titanium door or something like that. Kind of like he grabs all these tools. He goes down to the, like the, I don't know, like the, the storage bays where all the machinery that they're bringing with them is stored. And he grabs all these tools and blow torches and whatnot. And he's trying to get at the crew because he, he has questions, right? He's like, well, why am I awake? And nobody else is. Because he finds out that he's got like, you know, 90 more years to go or whatever it is. Like he'll live his whole life here on this ship and he doesn't know why. Um, he tries to go back to sleep, but it doesn't work that way. Apparently there's like a whole procedure that puts you to sleep, but that these pods are only good for keeping you asleep. Is so the procedure in, involving the Ben Stiller character from Happy Gilmore? Yes. Exactly. It takes a warm cup of hot milk, or a warm cup of shut the hell up, and then you go to sleep. Um, so he can't get at the the crew. The only companion he has is this bartender, Android, that tends bar at this one place. For some reason, he's the only kind of um, humanoid Android. There are all these other restaurants on the ship. But they're all staffed by these kind of, um, they kind of look like um, the robot in the Jetsons, the robot, you know, they're kind of like, I don't know, they're like faceless, like uh, mechanical shavers. Don't really, they don't have no personality. All they do is they serve you. But this android robot bartender um, is actually kind of human and he can speak. He has a fairly decent AI so that Chris Pratt can, like, talk to you, and he's not, like, super lonely and stuff. So you don't mean Rosie the maid, right? I do mean Rosie the maid, but without, like, the personality of Rosie the maid. She just kind of just kind of looked like her a little bit. Okay. Imagine Rosie the maid and uh, a mechanical shaver, 
and put those two together, and they look like the robots. It's not a big deal. Anyway, so Chris Pratt is like super lonely man, and he starts growing the last man on Earth beard, because what does he care? And he's having breakfast every morning, but he's like a C-class passenger, so the automatic breakfast dispenser only gives him like regular coffee and like some bowl of oatmeal every morning. As opposed to everything else that's available. It's like every day. Same. Same every day. Every day. Every day. Uh, Although um, he can order other things at other restaurants. So I don't know why he doesn't just go to other restaurants for breakfast. Doesn't make any sense. But they keep using that as like a whatever. And, and um, speaking, speaking of that beard, I, I personally have that beard. You do? Yeah. It's where I live. Down the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm currently rocking a beard. It's it's a good look, and nobody can see me anyway, so who cares? Are we those neck-bearded uh, libertarians yes. that everyone complains about? <laughs> yes, we are neck-beards. We are internet neck-beards. Yep. I believe they're if called you trolls. you know that, you are. We're trolls. <laughs> Sorry. That's what we are. So, uh, Chris Pratt, um, he's super lonely, and he starts looking over the the other passengers, and he finds this good-looking lady. And he's like, ooh, she's looking good. And he finds out who she is, and he finds out that she's a writer, and her writing is available on the ship somehow. I don't know how. But he reads it, and he's, like, totally infatuated with her. thinks she's just be fantastic. She'd be perfect for him, on and on and on. But he's debating with himself and with the bartender guy about, you know, what should he do? He can't right. go back asleep. This bartender. But if he wakes her up, isn't it's it's absolutely an act of aggression, isn't it? So I just want to back up for a second. So the bartender back dude up. in the uh, trailer, he reminded me of the bartender in The Shining. You got me on that one. I haven't seen The Shining in a trillion years. Oh my goodness! We're, we got to do The Shining. Really, because there's if moral anything, implications about murdering your family or not? Well, that's up for debate, my friend. True story. <laughs> uh, all right, continue. Continue on. I, I feel like I just destroyed the entire uh, pivot point of this entire episode right there. Because you yeah. were about to so, say what, what, the, what the hinging moment is, and I was like, oh, that dude looks like this other dude. It's fine. It's fine. The main entire thrust of talking about this movie is just because is he aggressing against her for waking her up? Because you are essentially dooming her to not, you know, what she wants to do is wake up on this other planet. Now, there is some risk, of course, that you'll never make it. There's risk that you could be woken up accidentally. When he actually wakes her up, he decides to wake her up. He does not tell her that he has woken her up. She's just like, huh, weird that I'm awake. And you're awake, huh, weird. And you were alone for a year, huh, weird. And let's talk and get to know each other. Um, and they're actually, it gets to a point where they're interacting a whole bunch, and he's about to propose to her when the robot, android bartender, um, spills the beans. And, you know, she is absolutely horrified and mortified. That's and a violation right there. The bartender... Is supposed to not divulge anything you tell him at the bar. In fact, that is part of the discussion. Uh, in the movie, he says, I would never tell her because I'm a gentleman. But then Chris Pratt says, 
well, we have no secrets between ourselves in the in the company of the bartender. So when Chris Pratt says that, you know, we have no secrets between us, I think the bartender decides that that means that he is free to divulge that information. But um, afterwards, after she is like super hate mode at this guy, she hates him with all her magic, um, another guy wakes up. And all kinds of weird shit starts happening in the ship. Systems fail, and, like, the gravity goes out at some point, and the lights go off, and computers reboot and glitch out. And um, Morpheus is woken up. Lawrence Fishburne. What? And he, Yeah, that's right. He's in this movie. And he uh, he's like an old engineer guy. He's one of the crew. And he they're, like, investigating the ship. Like, what's going on with the ship? Why is it breaking? Why is everybody waking up? What's what's happening? And Lawrence Fishburne goes and inter, um, investigates the pods, right? And he finds out that, yeah, Chris Pratt, um, he woke up, you know, as a part of this accident. But Jennifer Lawrence was woken up by Chris Pratt. And the explanation... It goes as this, like for the, as a reason why, like the movie kind of explains why, or gives some sort of a justification for it here. Um, Jennifer Lawrence goes up to Lawrence Fishburne and it's like, you saw what he did. That's murder. So my question for you, Daniel, is it murder? Well, what Lawrence Fishburne says, he says, well, he was alone for a year. He was drowning and a drowning man will reach for anything to not drown and he will pull you under with him. Now she does not take this as, Oh yeah. I mean, she's still pissed off, of course, but she doesn't immediately forgive him because of this. But I wondered if you would accept this as an explanation, if you forgive him or if you see the Chris Pratt character as a completely immoral character for doing this. Now, I also want to know if you think the romance part works, but since you didn't see the movie, I'll have to chime in on that. But I'm going to let you talk for a little bit on anything that I've said and answer the questions that I've asked to you, sir. All right, so you've asked me a few questions, but I think that the primary one is, was he wrong in waking her, and then is it murder in him doing so? Is that basically... That's the basic question. Okay. And then, then the bartender confidence issue is ancillary. Um, you know, I think waking her is dishonest, of course, but, I mean, there's a reason that solitary confinement is a uh, cruel and unusual punishment. So if he was alone for a year, I mean, that's got to, like, really mess you up, right? And in our Logan episode, we talked about whether um, – you know, a mental health issue sort of makes you lose some of your self-ownership. And in that, I would expand upon it and say, does it somehow alter what one would perceive as okay versus not okay? Now, I sort of argue there is an objective morality, but when people are kind of going crazy, they're not going to exactly uh, behave in a moral capacity, right? So it's not that it's okay that he did this, but it's understandable that he did this. And I think that's the Lawrence Fishburne point, right? That he's a drowning man and he's reaching out to whatever he can hold on to. And, you know, it, it, it does seem like it was a rather premeditated 
thing in the respect that he scoured the entire passenger list and then honed in on her and, and learned as much about her, read her writing, all this stuff. And so, of course, when she awoke, he knew the right buttons to push, the right things to say. Uh, reminds me of, um, God, what was it, the Bill Murray movie, Groundhog Day, where he keeps going through the same day each time and he gets to a point where he screws up with the Andy McDowell uh, girl. And so the next day he changes one slight thing that he did and he makes it a little bit further in, in um, establishing a relationship with her. And then, you know, over time he like knows everything that he needs to know to win her over. And I think there's been some other movies that run along a similar kind of idea, right? Like, you know, as yeah, much what about- women want with Mel Gibson, right? He can read her thoughts. So he kind of like has an in to what she wants, but he has to, Still, even though he knows all that stuff, still has to be a, like a decent, honorable person for her to, him to, her to like him. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and in a way, there's some dishonesty there because when you are interacting with them, they don't know that you already know this. And so you're bending your behavior uh, with the foreknowledge or the um, – and of course, this would never happen, but you uh, – sort of have the ability to tailor yourself to their needs and wants and desires. And it's not necessarily your, who you really are. And in fact, you're sort of in the act of doing this, you're exhibiting that you're kind of a lesser person than, than you think you are, right? Or than, that you're portraying. However, I'd argue that, you know, people do this on date number one through 10 generally, right? Like we've talked about this in a previous episode. I don't remember exactly which one, but, um, it was, uh, a point yeah, all you, dating you, involves fraud. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's when we were talking about that dude who was representing himself as like a porn recruiter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and your point was, well, you know, how is it any different than, than dating really? I mean, maybe, maybe a matter of scale, right. um, but all he needed to do to solve the problem was actually recruit them for porn problem solved. Yeah. Yeah. For those who haven't listened to that episode of the guy who, was recruiting girls to be in porn and then sleep with them and like record the process. But then he wouldn't forward on the information and the details to any actual porn studios. And that's what got him in trouble is that he didn't actually follow through on what he said he was going to do. No, all he had to do was just follow through. (laughs) He would have got him out of all the trouble. But anyway, go ahead, Daniel. Yeah. So I think I was sort of working my way towards an answer here, but, Essentially, I think that Lawrence Fishburne has a point in that you can sort of understand why he did what he did. Uh But in an objective moral sense, it was not the proper thing to do. Um, But I think beyond that, you know, imagine that that he is rather than awakening this girl that he's attracted to, he was able to get get to the crew and wake the crew. And let's assume for a moment that the crew and this probably wouldn't actually be the case, but let's assume that the crew did not previously sign up for, hey, if something happens, wake us up and we'll try to fix the problem. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that they would have, but um, let's assume they haven't. So in that argument, he is trying to get somebody to help fix the problem. And so I think there's a bit more sympathy, at least for me, for him to wake up somebody who is going to help him solve a problem on the ship, even if they didn't grant their consent ahead of time. So it's sort of like a different 
reasoning behind it, but it's the same action, like you're still waking somebody up uh, without their consent. Right, and I, I give him a much bigger pass for if you had actually woken up one of the crew. Like, um, it's obviously, I think, a plot device to have the crew locked away under this impenetrable door, whereas the regular crew, or the regular passengers are just open and available to anybody because um, he, that's the, the first thing he tries is to try to wake up, you know, a member of the crew. And I think the audience would have been fully on board with that. That makes total sense because um, there is a messaging system on the ship and he goes to that and he's like, Hey, I'm awake. Why am I awake? It still says I'm like 96 miles or years away from getting to the planet. What's going on? And the ship says, you know, uh, this will be like $6,000. He's like, yeah, whatever. Who cares? Um, okay, your message has been sent. You will, it'll take 23 years to get to Earth and then you'll see, get him, it'll take 23 years to get back and you'll get this message in 46 years. And he's like, that's no fucking help at all. <laughs> so then he goes to, yeah, try and open up the, the crew and, uh, yeah, I would have been fully on board with him trying to wake up engineers or whatever. Because whatever, what ends up happening is when the Lawrence Fishburne character wakes up and they discover what is happening, um, it turns out that there are also huge side effects and it doesn't, it doesn't explain, the plot doesn't explain why it only happens to Lawrence Fishburne. But there were complications to Lawrence Fishburne waking up early and it said like, now, you now have like 196 diseases or complications or problems in your body. And it doesn't explain why only Lawrence Fishburne has those problems. It's more of a plot device to kill off Lawrence Fishburne. <laughs> um, poor Lawrence Fishburne. But um, they end up finding the problem, which is this, you know, it hit the asteroid at the very beginning, and nobody knew that on board the ship. But it had punctured, um, like, through the hull and punctured into this, like, engine compartment. And the engine was like overheating. And there's a whole kind of dramatic scene where um, Jennifer Lawrence realizes that Chris Pratt could die fixing this problem. And she realizes that she can't live without him. And she, you know, she, she doesn't want to die. She, she goes up to this hole for like an hour where she hates his guts. But then when she realizes that she's, he's going to die and he's sacrificing herself, himself to save her and everybody else on board the ship and that sort of thing, um, you know, she, she changes her tune. And if you had seen the movie, I wanted to ask you if that seemed like a realistic turn to you. On the one hand, here's a guy who woke her up and essentially doomed her to a life on board the ship, a, a life she had no, you know, she she knew some some risk. She assumed some risk, right? Going on the ship, something could go wrong. You might get woken up. You don't know. But it's definitely not the the life she wanted. Um, but then living alone, I mean, she didn't want to go and wake up somebody else. She would rather have him back and live her life with him. So anyway, she saves him, and then they get married on board the ship and. Um, they live out the rest of their life on board the ship. Um, so does that sound like a realistic thing to you? I don't know. I, I don't know really if I know if I have a whole lot of good questions to ask. It seemed 
it seemed a little bit like plot convenient, like right at this moment, I guess she realized that she really did care for him and that if they had met, you know, under different circumstances, maybe they would have fallen in love. But, um, I don't know. And another way of thinking about it, what choice did she have? I mean, he's the only person, unless she's willing to go wake up somebody else and maybe have them die from having this waking up, uh, disease that Lawrence Fishburne had. Um, yeah, she's, she's doomed to live alone. So that's a shit, shit-tastic scenario too. Uh, I don't know. Uh, almost seemed kind of like a pragmatic choice on her part to be like, well, I guess I love this guy. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question because that would put her in the same shoes as he was in. And if she were to act on that, you would make her the ultimate hypocrite, right? Because she spends an hour hating on him because he did that. And I think that the Lawrence Fishburne discussion about the drowning man maybe put that seed of doubt in her mind that maybe it is understandable why he did what he did. And so then when he comes to this point where, you know, she's kind of got her anger She's holding on to it, uh, and she thinks it's murder, right? That's what she says, like, you murdered me. Right, and that was the question I had for you. Right, and so before we get to that question, I, I just want to pursue this line of thinking. Mm-hmm. So she she ends up hating him, but then there's a seed of doubt planted in her mind by this Lawrence Fisherman character who then subsequently dies. So she she has this dose of mortality happening, right? And she realizes that she can't be mad at him for something that she would do if she lost him, the Chris Pratt character. And he's out there sacrificing himself for, quote unquote, the greater good, right, to solve this problem. And she realizes that if he dies, then she will be all alone herself to this um, isolation and solitary, you know, situation. So I can sort of see without watching the movie that somebody could come to resolve during a moment of epiphany to realize that, Hey, I would have done the same thing. He's actually out there doing something for me. I don't want to be alone. I mean, there's all sorts of ways that you can justify something in your mind, right? Like most people make an emotional decision and then rationalize it later. And I feel like that might be what she's doing here um, in deciding that she actually does need him. And, and it's, it's not even that, you know, they're necessarily this like, great match together, even though he may have presented himself in that way. But what other options does she have? You know, there's a huge survival instinct, right? Like if you don't have any other options, then the person across from you is like over time, eventually going to, you know, end up looking pretty good because they're your only option. Right. Yeah. And um, I would say that thousands of years of arranged marriages bear that out. Right. And it's not to say that that's like, a moral thing or the best thing to do. Um, but people will come to adapt. Humans are highly adaptable. You know, they'll like, there's so many, uh, and this is of course unfortunate, but like in uh, domestic, uh, violence, many times the, the person being abused will stay with the abuser because they're, you know, what, what, I don't want to be alone. I, you know, I need them or whatever justification they can come up with. Um, even if they're not legitimate or, true you know like even if they could leave they they feel like they can't and i I know i'm butchering this because i'm not in that situation i really shouldn't be speaking too much on it but from what i can see 
you know, that, that situation does happen. Right. And uh, to be fair, the movie does do a pretty good job, I think, after he wakes her up, and even though he's being duplicitous the entire time by having his giant secret, um, it does do a fairly decent job of, I mean, the, character, the two actors have a fairly decent chemistry. Um, they seem to genuinely like each other. Um, it seems like in the one year of isolation, Chris Brett did his fairly decent homework and found, figured out that they would be a fairly decent match. So he self, uh, e harmonied her? Yes, exactly. Um, although it, the, the movie doesn't show us him looking over, oh, everybody else. He basically just, I mean, I don't think it has time to do that. It basically just land on her and then he like uh, analyzes her. And reads her writing and, you know, feels like he knows her mind by the words she's written. Um, so I'll give them, you know, a fairly decent romance point for that. Um, the turn for me was a little quick. It was a little, she went from, like, absolutely hating this guy and despising him to being there in an emergency. And, you, you know, in an emergency, you get your, what, your adrenaline up and you're all excited and you tend to attribute, you know, your exciting times to the people you're with, which is why, like, going on exciting first dates tend to be more successful than just, like, a really boring first date where you're maybe having interesting conversation or whatever. But if you actually get your heart rate up and you're doing something exciting, you falsely put that excitement on the person you're with. Oh, also a deception then. Yeah, but, hey, that's what dating is, right? Um, so yeah, uh, first date tip there. Do something exciting. Um, first date tip from the neckbeards. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, so Pratt, for me, you know, when, when he initially, I kept, right before he was thinking about doing it, and you knew he was going to do it, but I kept saying, don't do it. Don't do it. It's terrible. You are aggressing against her absolutely 100%. And, um, you know, it's not like you could, uh, you couldn't just wake up everybody because, you know, there's thousands of people on the planet. There's probably only enough, um, resources on the ship to last the, I think it's like five months that the crew wakes up before arriving at the planet and then three months for everybody else. So there's probably not enough provisions for everybody to last for a hundred years or whatever it was. Um, and you know, I, I, if, if waking up one person is immoral, waking up everybody. Um, even worse, if you want to go down that road. Um, other than that, I, uh, she, you know, she forgives him, uh, and then they live happily ever after, sort of, supposedly. But, um, I don't know, that was, that's pretty much my entire load on passengers. That's unfortunate well, you haven't seen it, but no, let, maybe let's, more things. Let's explore it a little bit because, she claims that he, he murdered her, but she's there in front of him talking to him. <laughs> so that's a little weird. Yeah, that is I mean, a little weird. He does remove the life she thought she was going to have. That much is true. But she still has her life. And, yes, he did aggress in waking her up because um, she, of course, did not agree to this ahead of time, and she's not crew, so it's, like, less understandable. But he was, as Morpheus was saying, the drowning man who was going to go crazy, right? And what's his other alternative? Kill himself or go crazy and wake people up? 
Yeah, and there is a point in time in the movie in the beginning where he does, he's standing at the airlock and he's about to push the button. So yeah, he, he contemplated it at least once, if not multiple times. But he actually tried to, you know, maybe go through it once. Yeah, so is it murder to remove what somebody thought their life was going to be? Eh, nobody knows what the future's going to hold. I mean, she's going on this spaceship to go to sleep for 120 years or whatever the number is, to go to some other planet, other, you know. There's certainly a risk involved with that, and I'm sure there'd be some uh, contracts and documents that she would have signed stating as such. Not to say that right. that meant she agreed to be awakened. Um, Chris Pratt, you know, he, he also didn't agree to be awakened. And, and it, for whatever reason, his one pod out of thousands gets woken up because of the uh, asteroids. Um, I don't know. Based on what you've told me in the movie, it almost plays out as kind of the best play way it could have. I mean, not that, you know, he didn't violate the NAP. I think he did. Um, but his, his alternative was kill himself or go insane and probably kill himself or harm even more people. Well, uh, to point that out, I mean, to make on that point, the, um, the ship is degrading and it's the Chris Pratt character along with the Jennifer Lawrence character who ended up saving the ship. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. So they would have all woken her up. Yeah. The whole ship would have blown up and everybody would have died. Not to necessarily say that justifies what he did, but he did, in the end, rescue everybody from certain death. So right. Now, it, imagine he never woke her. up. You know, the movie doesn't happen, right? Like, he, <laughs> ship gets hit by asteroids, degrades over time, everyone dies. Yeah, that's not a movie anybody would make. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to have a story. Um so, yeah, based on what you told me, I think that, you know, it played out sort of the best case scenario where he was, um, you know, able to come to the aid of the 5,000 people who were remaining. I don't know. It's kind of bizarre. Um, it's, it's another one of those, like Mad Max, like those contrived situations, of course. Yeah. Um, but it is an interesting exploration of, of the morality. I think that there's uh, degrees or a scale of um, violations like, you know, a small thing to a big thing. And this wasn't necessarily a small thing, but it wasn't outright murdering her. I mean, she was still alive. Uh, did he take something from her? Well, yeah, he took her expectations of what she was going to get, but she also right. would have known the risks, I think, or would have had at least signed some, you know, stack of papers that said, Hey, there's you know risk of this and this and this and 5,000 other things. So it's not like it wasn't outside of the realm of possibility, even if you didn't read it. I mean, you got to know, like, you're taking a risk whenever you do anything. And going into a starship to go to sleep for 120 years, um, I think would be pretty high on that risk risk scale. Yeah, and even though they do, throughout the movie, they keep remarking on, well, that's impossible. You can't possibly be awake because the pods never fail. They don't fail. They just don't fail, which... Titanic pods. <laughs> right. It's a Titanic situation where, yeah, this boat can't sink. Um, but it just shows that, yeah, even though you think that something is guaranteed, there is no such thing as a guarantee. Um, and how much did he actually, you know, he, he robbed her of her supposed life, What she because her plan 
I don't think I've mentioned this yet, was to go to this faraway planet, and it was going to take her, you know, 100 and whatever years, live there for one year, write about it, and then return to Earth, like 240 years later or whatever it is, where everybody, you know, back on Earth would be dead, but she would be the only person with that story because she's like a journalist and she wanted to write about how she did this amazing thing or whatever. Um, so that was her plan that he robbed her of. Um, at the very end of the movie, um, she's, you know, totally happy and she has lived a life, a full life with this man that she loves on board this ship. Um, when the, uh, the crew wake up, the crew wake up to find like, we assume that they, we find, uh, the two of them dead. Um, I was expecting from my point of view, I was expecting like when the crew wakes up, they find like some young people living there and just hanging out, living life, doing whatever. Oh, like kids. Yeah. Kids, man. What are they? They're two young people. They could have kids that you're going to want to have kids. Uh, you don't want to just be the two of you on the board, that spaceship forever. Um, maybe you do. Maybe. Uh, I think I thought, I thought kids were coming, but they they didn't. Um, but yeah, uh, you've you've already mentioned it a bit, but I think you have certain expectations about your future, and you definitely have the right not to be aggressed against. But just because what you think is going to be your life is going to be like, and it doesn't turn out that way, doesn't mean that you have somehow necessarily lost something. I don't think. Um, you definitely have all this possibility, but just because your life takes one path over another doesn't necessarily mean um, you've lived a less of a less of a life, so to speak. Even if you don't get to do all the things you initially wanted to. Yeah, and I don't necessarily ascribe to the butterfly effect. I'm, I'm sure there's some like quantum physics or some kind of philosophy around it, but you know, any slight change or deviation in, in a plan can totally alter the outcome. And how many people? Uh, actually live the life that they plan or foresee, you know, Almost I mean, nobody. yeah, everybody, you always ask what, what did you want to be when you grew up? And it's always some like other thing that they say, right? Like John Lennon said, uh, life's what, what happens when you're busy making other plans, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so many people have goals and don't follow through on them. I mean, I'm sure that there's a small minority of people who are like super goal focused and oriented and figure out how to accomplish that whole list of things that they do or want to do, um, but even they don't have the um, luxury of foretelling the future and seeing that it's all going to work out. Um, you know, the whole idea of, of voluntary choice and, and uh, free free interactions means that you don't necessarily know what's going to happen. So I think at the end of the day, it's not murder. It certainly is some level of, of an aggression, um, but he didn't do take you... anything from her. Mm-hmm. He introduced a he, risk, or realized a risk that she she was aware of, I think, or or would have at least, on paper, signed up for. Do you see yourself? I mean, you're in love with this Chris Pratt character, and he's romancing you, and he's whatever. Then you find out that he's woken you up. I'm all hot and bothered now, by the way. I know. I'm pushing your button, and you find out that he has betrayed you and woken you up. Um, but then he sacrifices himself to save you and everybody else. Are you, are you going to forgive him for this transgression? Because this is a huge thing, right? 
this is a huge thing to have this life ripped away from you of what you think is going to happen as opposed to what actually happens. And it's all because of this one person who is drowning, grabbing you. Right. But to, to go back to our, you know, butterfly effect thing, like you never know what is really going to happen. How many people get the life that they actually envision. Um, and, and are you going to be able to rationally think about that when you're upset with Chris Pratt? Well, not, not initially, of course, but there's a huge time scale here, right? Like he was on this thing for a, a year awake and then they romance for a while, of course. Right. And then yes. she discovers this due to the, um, the bartender, which I think we can touch on just real briefly before we shut this one down. Um, but, you know, she's had time to go through the Kubler-Ross, you know, stages of um, grief. Is that what it is? Like, you know, yeah, the acceptance at the end, uh, which, you know, maybe the, the catalyzing event was the adrenaline, you know, like, oh, he's sacrificing himself. He's going to die. I, then I'll be alone. And then I'll be in what position, you know? I go crazy or I wake someone else up and then I can't be mad at him for doing the thing that I did or would do. Mm-hmm. So I can see that with, with enough time scale, you get through that, that stages and, and you have this emotionally charged event and it, and it kicks over. It, it sounds reasonable to me, especially from a storytelling perspective. There's also a large pragmatic point, right? I mean, you got to forgive him at some point because, you're the only two people on board the ship and you don't want to live alone for the rest of your life. Do you Right, alone, but together? I mean, I guess a lot of people do that, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I just described like every wedding marriage ever. I don't know. Sorry. But yeah, I mean, over a long enough time scale, I think that human nature is to process emotions and then make the best of their situation. Like that's the whole idea of economizing, right? You take limited, uh, resources, scarce resources and limited time, scarce time. And you, you try to achieve your ends, uh, with the means you have available. And I think that they were, um, means to each other, right? Like they looked at their environment and, and made determinations on what's going to make them happy. And of course they had to get through the, you know, the emotional anger. Cause I'm sure that, yeah, I'd be pissed off too. But at some point, yeah, you do have to get pragmatic and, and decide, okay, you know, the past is the past. I'm pissed off about it, but I've got to make a decision. What's the rest of my life going to be like? What do I want to just continue to be pissed off or do I want to make the best of the situation? And, you know, you, anyone can play do with Do you that. ever truly forgive the man or do you just kind of like put it in the past, move forward? Subjective, man. I, I don't know. I can't speak for, for her. Or him. I'm asking you. Because Chris Pratt has woken you up, robbed you of your life. Do you ever forgive the man? Truly forgive him. He's robbed me of the life I was was thinking I was going to get. He wasn't robbed me of my life. I'm I'm sitting there talking to him. Yeah. Uh, Personally, yeah, I think that, you know, I get used to it. I'd I'd be like, all right, this is my situation now. I can't go back. Being pissed off at you is not going to accomplish anything. So, yeah, pragmatic. Make the best of it. I mean, unless, you know, unless he's like totally a shitty person and you don't want to like be around them. Which, yeah, the movie never gives us. It only gives us they like each other a whole lot. They like each other a whole lot. And then she learns the truth and she, she hates him. So she knows that she can like him and she does like him. She just feels betrayed, which is understandable. 
Yeah, totally understandable. But I don't think it's murder, and I don't think that you can rob somebody of – like, it, it's not a tangible property, like what you think your future is going to be. It's sort of like a patent, <laughs> you know? Like yeah. It's, it's not real property. Like, it's not something someone can actually own. It's it's a goal they can have in their mind uh, that they attempt to achieve, but everyone knows that not everything's going to go according to plan, and it's just how things work. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not it's not the same, but say if your goal or whatever, you're, you have this idea that you're going to invent, like, the light bulb, and then this asshole Thomas Edison comes along and beats you to it. Has he robbed you of your of your life? I, I don't think so, but that's not the same. Right, and only with, with the government patent office has he robbed you of anything. I mean, I think that IP is theft, intellectual property is theft, to do a take on the uh, property is theft. Um, I think intellectual property is theft because you're preventing someone else from utilizing or using their own creation because you won this uh, mythical race to a, a patent office. Right, which is enforced with government violence. Right, exactly. Um, do you want to shift to the uh, bartender dude? If you got anything on the bartender dude, sure. Yeah. Okay. I thought he was uh, Simon Pegg for the entire movie. By the way, if anybody has seen this movie, it's not Simon Pegg, but it looks a lot like him, and probably doesn't look super like him. But it was enough that I go, oh, Simon Pegg, for some reason. He's on a starship, <laughs> right? And now he's uh, he's been playing. What is it, Scotty, on uh, the newer Star Trek movies? Yeah, and he had a cameo in the new Star Wars movie, The Force Awakens. So yeah, he's all into this, all into this bizzo. And you're a total nerd, so it works out. Shut your face. I thought you wanted to keep going. <laughs> so the bartender dude. Um, so I was sort of earlier in this episode speaking not of the movie, but just the whole general implicit agreement that exists, I believe, between bartenders and their patrons like you go to the bar and you tell them about your problems and it's in confidence mm, okay like a doctor client privilege yeah but not you know you're not signing anything it's just sort of how things are and i don't know if it's like a legitimate thing or not but it's an impression that i get is that there's this implicit agreement that you know you can sort of like talk to bend their ear and they won't divulge that information outside of that uh, situation uh, well, now, right let's, or wrong. Let's, let's, let's pretend that the bartender is a real person, and he knows that Chris Pratt um, wakes her up. Do you think he has any kind of obligation? And I know we're not for positive obligations here, but just play around with this one. Does he have any sort of obligation to tell her that this Chris Pratt guy is being duplicitous? Yeah, that's a tough call. Like, let's say, you know, you... You have a friend, you know, that uh, they're cheating on, on their girlfriend, boyfriend, wife, husband, whatever. Do you have an obligation, quote unquote obligation? Do you tell yeah. your friend that, hey, so-and-so's doing X? I don't know. Yeah. I think that's sort of, that's a tough call. That's an individual making that call. I don't think that there's really a, a good choice, in that, you know, because you're betraying one in either situation. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, it gets into loyalty and whatnot. Are you because you know the the person who is being duplicitous has already betrayed the person, right? So the moral so, high ground is, is you you tell on them, but then you're not you're a narc. <laughs> yeah, right. 
And then what's your relationship with, with both parties? You know, like, let's say it's, you know, your best friend is doing the duplicitous shit. You know, then it really plays into the loyalty thing. It's a tough question. Yeah, it is tough. And I don't know if I have the answers. But, um, uh, in, the, in this movie, the bartender is, of course, computer, a uh, robot. So does that change right. uh, your impression of, of the situation? Because you had said that he makes an agreement with Chris Pratt that everything is in confidence, right? And then in front of uh, – what's her name? Jennifer something? Jennifer Lawrence. Jennifer Lawrence. He says, oh, there's no secrets between us in earshot of this guy, the bartender guy thing. Bartender. Right. And right. So the bartender's there. He hears that, and he goes, oh, that's a lie. Mm-hmm. Or or that's permission for me to divulge anything. Right. And in his defense, the bartender really kind of breaks it to her really well. Um, the bartender goes, man, he was so – that was such a hard decision for him to, to wake you up. It was he, – he fought himself for a year. He didn't want to do it. He really lays uh, the case out for Chris Pratt. But, you know, it's not good enough, <laughs> which it wouldn't be for me either. I'd be like, what the fuck you just say? <laughs> yeah, so let's get um, into that because you asked me. Well, I don't mean to derail you, but, but when you're done no, with your ahead. point, um, you'd ask me, you know, like, what would I think if Chris Pratt woke me up? You know, the hunk of hunk of burning love he is. Uh, let's switch it back to you because you just said you would not be okay with this. So um, explain that, but make your point unless you're ready to just shift over to that other thing that I just said. Like, would I, would I be, I, I, I don't know if I would have been as forgiving as the uh, Jennifer Lawrence character. I'm not a woman, but if you just re- flip the revolt, reverse the roles, um, I might've been, if that makes any sense whatsoever. So if a woman woke you up, you'd be maybe okay with it. But if you were a woman and some dude woke you up, you wouldn't be sexist. Yeah, I'm very sexist. Um, well, no, I think I think I would have the, the pragmatism of the event would have taken over, and I, I probably would have been resentful about it. Maybe my entire life, I don't know. Depends on how you're feeling with the with the, with the lady friend. Uh, they definitely seem to truly care for each other, and I could empathize with their decision and not wanting to be alone and whatever. Um, but I. I I still would have felt, you know, aggressed upon and, and somewhat robbed, even though, like we've said, it's not necessarily murder, but you are taking away the, the expectations, um, even though we're not guaranteed anything in life, like we kept saying. Um, would I have forgiven Jennifer Lawrence for waking me up? Uh, yeah, man, I... I it wouldn't have been the super quick turn, but of course it's a movie and they're compressing things for time. So they, you know, the characters need to make quick turns. Um, yeah, I mean, what's it take you five years, you know, 10 years? I mean, you're aging this whole time, right? Right. But, you know, we're living on this ship together. Um, there's no one else to talk to except for this robot. Uh, and I, yeah, would I wake somebody else up? Probably not. Uh, that would just yeah make me a hypocrite. So, man, it's, it's a it's a tough one. Now, I, what if what if we dive into a sub question of so you're both awake now, and you determine we've got X number of supplies, and we could wake up 
a dozen more people and still make it on time to this thing or, you know, still have enough for everyone to make it to their end and end result other than the people we wake up just so you have like a, a community of sorts or do you maybe wake up some of the crew who would have uh, probably unlike my scenario in the beginning where they would not have consented to this kind of thing happening. Well, I guess once you fix the malfunction, then that consent wouldn't have still been in play, but like just to have a sense of community, would you wake additional people once you've come to terms with, the first person waking you up. Sounds like for you, probably not. For me, it would be more like, hey, let's have some kids. But if, you know, we were both males or both females, you might, that might be more of a pressing question. Um, yeah, because, I mean, you, you have kids to not only pass on your DNA and whatever, but you also make this rich family life, right? Where you have all these varying personalities and you're developing and teaching and, getting all these rich experiences. I mean, you know, you're a dad. There's probably reasons why you had children, aren't there? Probably. I'll try to remember some of that. <laughs> now, my girls are great. They're awesome. Uh, and I, I get to spend a lot of time with them, which I feel, feel very fortunate about that. They're awesome. Full disclaimer, he likes his kids. Good. Yeah, so if you if you didn't have that option of being able to have children, or let's say that they are like sterile or something, or having been woken up early, it's messed up your reproductive whatever. Oh, maybe they've got the um, app you were telling me about pre-show, where they can find out if Chris Pratt's got swimmers or not. Yeah, maybe they got that app, Daniel. It's in the future. The app's coming out next year, or maybe if the FDA approves of it. Who knows if they will? And it's going to cost like fifty bucks. So it's going to be sweet. Cut the cost down from uh, like 250 to $350, what it is now, to uh, get your uh, sperm tested. But, yeah, say they aren't fertile, then it's just the two of them. Uh, I still probably wouldn't. I, I, I don't think I would. I can't speak for how crazy I'll get. But in this frame of mind, right here speculating on what I might do, I would say I wouldn't. But I also believe in the NAP, so <laughs> uh, people in desperate situations will do desperate things. And like we've said on the show multiple times, it's it's hard to necessarily um, Monday morning quarterback them, um, especially when they're the ones that have been aggressed against, but also just in like crazy situations that happen in movies that generally almost never happen in real life, but other times they do. And that's where we make our hay on this show. Yeah. Uh, so just some of the economics, real briefly. Uh, you had mentioned a couple of things like he's a C-class passenger. He got a discounted rate to get on this thing. He can only get a certain type of meal. It costs X amount to send a message, and whether he has that amount of money or credits or whatever, um, does it feel like maybe there's a little bit of a snow piercer like class classism commentary here? Mm, I didn't get that vibe. I mean, when Jennifer Lawrence gets woken up, she is like an A-class passenger. So they're sitting down to breakfast, like in one of their first scenes as they're both awake, and he's eating his like oatmeal. And she sits down with, you know, her eggs and toast and everything else and she's like what have you been eating for this whole year 
And so he's like, yeah, no, it's fine. It's fine. I'm not an A-class passenger. And she's like, oh, forget about it. She goes and gets him one. Um, but I think it was more of uh, just, you know, it costs a lot of money. Uh, they do make some comments at the beginning about him being a uh, you know, design profession, so he got his uh, rate cut. And then they also made some comments about how lucrative the company was, how they were like almost the exclusive uh, farrier to these new worlds. So imagine like SpaceX or whatever um, in, you know, a couple hundred years in the future or something, and they have, um, they're the exclusive or not necessarily the exclusive, but like the main um, provider, the Amazon of shuttling people to and from planets and how lucrative that would be. Um, it's interesting. I saw an article the other day that was talking about how, um, I think it was SpaceX, how they are, they're not governed by U.S. regulations and how that they would have to regulate themselves. And I was like, sweet, sounds like a good idea. Because the United States doesn't have jurisdiction in space, imagine that. And so the market will have to decide what um, what the proper procedures would be for traveling in space for uh, passengers, as opposed to bureaucrats. Imagine that. Yeah, I, I love the um, the blind belief in experts and good politicians to steer the good ship government to make the best decisions for everyone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it, on its surface, it's a plausible argument, right? Like you've got experts in this particular subject matter making decisions, but it totally misses the point of the um, distributed information network that the market is, you know, the, the prices convey information about the relative abundance or scarcity of millions and millions of, of items, components, commodities, what have you. And it transmits this information in a, a very organic latticework kind of, kind of structure that has more information than any expert or even a supercomputer could manage, you know, to, to make decisions with, right? Mm-hmm. And all of these things, so long as they're voluntary, are perfectly moral things to do. And any intervention within that is, of course, uh, a violation. And so it's just kind of an interesting problem to to discuss with someone who isn't familiar with how theories of economics or how markets function to think that, oh, we just rely on electing the right people or getting the right experts, the technocrats in place. It's a very progressive um leftist ideal. And I think a lot of Republicans even kind of fall into that, you know, status kind of fall into this trap. And like I said, it seems plausible on the surface. Right. Yeah. I was just listening to a, a part of the problem episode where um, uh, Gene Epstein had um, a debate on whether or not um, healthcare should be privatized. And apparently some Huffington Post I haven't listened to the debate at all, but apparently some Huffington Post guy came on and argued that government should be involved and that sort of thing. And apparently uh, he won the debate. He convinced more of the undecideds than the free market guy. Um, Yeah, that's unfortunate. (laughs) Yeah, it is. But, you know, uh, when you say that, well, you know, more people will be covered if we subsidize it. Then, if you don't, it's it's a, a difficult 
a difficult uh, position if you accept that and don't counter it with, well, at what cost? Are you yeah, what, morally? What, what does coverage mean at that point? Right. You know, is coverage the goal or is health the goal? Is affordable services, is voluntary choices, you know? Mm-hmm. Like everyone in uh, communist country had health care insurance, right? right? Everyone in Cuba's got health insurance. <laughs> Everyone's covered, every 100%. Paradise, Daniel. Oh, yeah, good stuff. That's that, you know, it's part of why you can lie with statistics and, and feel good arguments and emotional arguments. And it's unfortunate and it's really hard to uh, get through to, to folks on that, um, to crack that bubble. Yeah, it is. Because, you know, government is seen as, well, we have it, so therefore we should use it. When every problem looks like a nail, get your machine gun. That's right. That's right. And you keep using this government, you know, you keep advocating for it, even though just because, you know, we have it. Well, we have it, so we should use it. If that's your argument every time, then what's the point in having a principle if you abandon it when it's inconvenient? Indeed, sir. Yeah. Well, if you don't have anything else, I feel like we should uh, wind this one down. I think it was actually pretty good to um, get an hour or so out of a movie that has basically one or two crucial questions. So. Good job on us. We milked it. We milked the shit out of this one. Uh, it was a, it's a really good movie. I recommend it. Uh, we just spoiled the shit out of it. Hopefully you saw it before we, we heard this. Um, it did come out like, I don't know, five, six months ago. Um, it's well done, well acted, uh, well written. Um, but I don't know if it's necessarily perfect. But it's way better than Suicide Squad. So if you saw that shit show, watch this thing instead. <laughs> or watch this thing too. We run actualanarchy.com and readrothpower.com. I welcome you to visit the site. Check out the 300, uh, 400 plus stories that are there. We post a few every day. We've got an RSS feed. We've got Amazon links. We've got Amazon Prime down at the bottom. Check out Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. We appreciate you joining us for this episode where we talked about the movie Passengers. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, or wherever podcasts are sold. Thank you very much. We'll catch you on the next episode. Peace out, homies. Peace out. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do